Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Officers Lord, I have taken it upon myself to explore the lower decks of our spaceship, with hopes of repurposing one of those odd compartment rooms we only used once during a particular adventure and never went back to, into a permanent Leonard Nimoy memorial shrine. Oh no, 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 this won't do at all. Mission update. The auxiliary engineering chamber, with all those lava lamps and flashing neon lights in the tables, is frankly too hot, leading me to believe the commemorative pointy ears will melt into their display cushion. Also, I must sadly report the promising nebulous storeroom is underlit, and frankly too cluttered. The only notable feature is the large, easy-access ventilation shaft. I think we came out that way once and we had to escape from our own brig during the infamous I thought you had the keys incident. Moving on. The next door in the corridor leads to the Chamber of Peace. That's the one with an unnecessary number of computer monitors on one wall. I think they're supposed to all sync up and show a nice green field or something while gentle music plays and you just kind of look at it and chill out while sitting in one of those 60s egg chairs. I haven't been in there myself, but I believe Justin uses it to play Counter-Strike. Oh, uh, hello. Greetings. I didn't know there was anyone here. Uh, there were no life signs on the scan. That is because I am not alive. You're a zombie? You're quite well spoken for a zombie. I am. The architect. I control all that was, all that is, and all that will be. Uh, aren't you supposed to be in the Matrix? Who says that you are not in the Matrix? How would you know? I know because I am the supreme mastermind of the intricate web designed to control and dominate a species. You three, the 80s kids, are just the remainders of a differential equation left behind when the great arc of non-Euclidean geometric cancellation has entered the third phase of contra-integration, looping infinitely... Wait! No, stop! Your mind bows beneath the weight of my magnificence. No, this is a problem. We already did the Matrix skits in 1999 and 2003. And this is just, well, the Wiskowskis have been involved in more production than just the Matrix, you know. Yes, but none of their other works have the breadth, the depth, the philosophical weight of their magnum opus. 
which they described as robots versus kung fu. They are famously self-deprecating maverick genii with a competence for both genre action and philosophical musing. They are the filmmakers the world needs. They are the future of cinema. Hang on. Leo, is that you under that silly white beard? Uh, no. No. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Oh, no. Those nice white curtains. I was going to spruce up the obs deck with those. Sorry, I needed the costume. What, to make another attempt at winning the Wiskowski's are relevant filmmakers debate? Am I going to have to make you watch Jupiter Ascending again? I just think that their failures are often more interesting than other people's successes is all. If I sit down and talk this through with you, will you let it go? I suppose. And will this mean I have paid you back for my Doctor Who episode, meaning I can talk about Doctor Who again on the show? Now, hang on a minute. Well, you can't blame a guy for trying. So, let's start with Bound. Ooh, those lesbians. Uh, wait a second, wait a second. No, no, you can't start with Bound. Uh, you have to at least take a moment to start with um, Assassins, starring Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone. I, I don't know. They want their names taken off the project. <coughs> I feel we should honour their wishes. <laughs> I, I don't think... I don't, did they want their name taken off the thing? According, off to, the according to the great sage Wikipedia, this is indeed the case. Yes, I did notice that IMDB, because I was saying, yeah, I, I don't think they're particularly happy with it, because IMDB specifically uh, relates that their script was the basis for what became uh, Assassins. There was a time, I suppose, when you could think, well, they've done the Matrix and now Assassins is kind of hanging over them. Uh, and then when we get to things like Cloud Atlas, or V for Vendetta, if you put all those together, Assassins doesn't really sit well in that. But then you add in Speed Racer and Jupiter Ascending huh. and it's like, well, really? You're going to make Jupiter Ascending and then say, oh, but take our name off Assassins. I, but we'll, we'll get to that. I think it's a credit, yes. a credit control issue. I mean, just, just to, so speak, Wikipedia. Uh, they felt the rewrite, uh, it was heavily rewritten and it removed all subtext and visual metaphor and they chose to call it an abortion of the original idea and they wanted their names removed. So I still haven't seen so, Assassins though, by the way. It was just one of the films on in 1995. Oh, it was, it's incredibly dull. I wouldn't bother. It's only remarkable for the fact that it's like, oh, you know that uh, the script was for that was the first one option written by the Wachowskis. Uh, and I think that was why they kind of went, right, that's it. We're sick of this. We're going to make our own. Uh, and, and so the story goes. They went straight to the Matrix. That's what they wanted to make. They wanted to make the Matrix. And the film studios went, hey, wait, 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 you know, we don't give you the money to make the Matrix straight off the bat. Make something else that's a bit smaller. And so now finally we get to Bound. Uh, which I'm interested to note is a film that has almost entirely disappeared at this mm. stage. Uh, you can't even search for it on Amazon Prime Instant Video. It's it's definitely, especially after watching Matrix, it's definitely stylistically a Wiskowski's film in terms of how it's shot with the green and the suits and everything else like that. I've only ever seen it once at your behest. I think you said, you must watch this and we stuck it on and watched it. I don't know, because it's such a smaller scale film, I mean, it, could, it could almost be a stage play. Uh, in terms of its uh, the confinement of its of its principal setting of of the apartment, and I believe it's a mob boss, a mob player. He's not the boss; he's a mob lieutenant. 
he, she's the wife and she has an affair with another woman and they conspire together to get her husband killed by the mafia boss or something or kill the mafia boss. And so they can run away or something like that. I seem to remember being sufficiently entertaining with enough twists to keep you going and that, and they struggled sufficiently for narrative satisfaction to get, to get their job done. I would I would hesitate to say that it's boring. I think that Wachowskis were kind of like, okay, we've written a script and we like to write scripts, so that was good. Um, and each of these tasks is like a challenge. It's like a new thing to, to sort of, what do we learn about making a script from writing this script for assassins that we then, and from selling the script and then from finding out that people are just going to take the script, do what the hell they want to it and, and leave it, abandon it in a gutter somewhere. Uh, and so then they went, okay, so we know now how to write a script and how to pitch a movie and and do all these things so we're going to make a movie and they make bound and they go right now we have learned how to make a movie and so then they turn up with matrix please and and i think one of the things that they set themselves one of the challenges that they set themselves with bad was to come in as the famous phrase goes on time and under budget and they wanted to turn a profit so that they could then get the money to make the whole thing with bound was we want this picture to make money and, and a decent profit so that when we go to say, well, we want to make the matrix now, people can't say, oh, but you wasted all that money on that other film, which is kind of why I think bound is so confined because they're trying to cut back to the bone to just try and give their idea a chance to make some money, which indeed it did. And therefore the matrix. So in a way you can see that sort of everything they do up to the point where the matrix turns up is like a preparation for the Matrix, which is quite impressive when you think about it, because, you know, not many people put what is essentially their sort of sketch work out for people to see. The Assassin's thing is completely irrelevant at this point. Bound is like a dry run. It's like a let's manage a crew, let's do all these things. Well, they're not unhappy with it. They're quite proud of it, and rightly so. It's a fairly decent movie, especially if you think of the fact that we were aiming to complete a task. Having said all that, it is very much, when you kind of look at it in that way, yes, I can see that you were trying to get her done, and that was it. Now let's get on to Keanu Reeves and a Mac. Oh, very well. What can we say about The Matrix that we did not say in not only 1999, but also in our top five films of the 90s episode? Back then, we described, of course, how The Matrix was arguably the most important film of the 1990s and discussed the reasons for that. So therefore, now it would probably behoove to talk about... Why being the most important film or a sort of an era defining film, because it's it's ripples go forward as well as backwards, isn't necessarily such a great thing because it makes people go, OK, right, here we are with The Matrix. It's a Citizen Kane syndrome, as we as we diagnosed it. I think that if you look back on The Matrix, The Matrix is still the original and best. I think when Orson Welles made Citizen Kane, all the things he did suddenly became the bread and butter of cinema. And for that reason, you look back and you go, well, that's a movie because you recognize it as a movie. Unfortunately for him and fortunately for the Wachowskis, you can only do that once. And the things that the Wachowskis brought in are not of that nature where you want to just all movies become like every movie 
become because of every movie there's quite a lot of movies that riff on it but there's not not every movie's like it. you don't get sudden sort of slow-mo bullet time rotatey shots in romantic comedies you did so whereas romantic comedies do use shot setups which were first pioneered in citizen kane because what orson wells was doing was defining a language of cinema that has endured and so therefore we have to say, you know, with the greatest respect to the Gaskis, you did not define a language of cinema that has endured in anywhere except sort of martial arts action movies, which is probably fine. Um, and sci-fi as well. Well, I was, I was more meaning it in the sense that people hear Citizen Kane from reviewers. Reviewers tell them Citizen Kane is, is one of the best films ever made. And they go watch it and go... Well, it was, was alright, a bit bored in places, to be honest with you. They don't realise that it had ripple effects, and The Matrix is much the same. You can go back and watch that now, and you might feel it slightly clichéd in places. It's only because The Matrix um. has been aped and parodied and copied so many times that characters talking very ponderously now is considered, you know, it's faux pretentiousness. Well, I think it was pretty pretentious even at the time. I mean, that, that's that, that's where the Wachowskis again got away with a coup, which is that although bullet time has been imitated and it did at least for five minutes and a very serious five minutes break the mold of the future being a post-apocalypse like yes it has a post-apocalypse future in it but people were far more interested which sort of baked it in that i am all in favor of the wakowskis and the matrix is that they didn't do a director's commentary on the matrix because there's a whole documentary about The mm. Matrix, which explains everything that they thought about their film. So what's the point of then rabbiting over the top of it? They instead invited the philosophers and the critics, uh, the philosophers who love the whole trilogy and the critics who distinctly go off the boil to uh, accompany you through the, you know, seven or eight hours of, of Matrix that exists and explain their point of view. And I think what's especially brave about this is that although the philosophers do like ding every philosophical concept on the way through and they're all like kids in a candy store throughout the whole thing, the critics aren't wrong when they start to talk about all the things that are bad, uh, particularly about the sequels. Yes. Um, and one of the things that they really hate is that in the first movie, they, they're willing to give the, the, the props to the fact that we'd never seen everyone dressed in sort of leather and, 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 and doing martial arts and all the, the slick kind of futuristic hackery kind of stuff. If that was new in 1999 that idea of the future being this place full of fashion models kicking the crap out of one another was a completely new concept and made the matrix necessarily fascinating and and gave it a gravity that pulled people in towards it and then as you go through the other movies you're like uh, oh, that, that's all gone then. You're going to do more stuff in Zion, which is pipes and people in rags and an apocalypse. And oh God, you know, like that Blade Runnery stuff starts to leak back in. And then there's a whole strand in the third movie, which as they say is people we don't care about fighting a battle we've seen before using things and techniques that we have seen a dozen times over. And when they win, you kind of go, yay, I guess. 
you know, mm. and then that's that's where it sort of goes off the boil. That people were really more interested in the Matrix than they were in the, the Apocalypse stuff, and because of the Apocalypse stuff being made into part of the whole rigmarole, it, it kind of went went away. I think that's a fair comment. The Wiskowskis, I believe, their commentary on the whole war in Zion was they wanted to tell a story about love motivating people to do incredible things. Uh, but personally, you know, I think it gets lost with like, giant robots are coming, better pick up a rocket launcher. Are we moving on to the sequels now, by the way, at all? Are we well, st- we, 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 uh, The Matrix is, like Back to the Future, it is really one narrative. Um, okay. And the philosophers make a very good point, which is that some people still don't understand it, but the one that people generally understand, The Matrix has a philosophical problem in that it takes up uh, a philosophy uh, known as Manichaeanism of, uh, you know, light and dark. You know, common allegorical, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And that what philosophers find so gosh darn exciting about the following stuff is that it breaks that down, which unfortunately to most people makes part the the matrixy parts of the sequels a little bit incomprehensible and quite dull and pretentious. But philosophers are like, yes, because it's not as simple as I'm good and you're evil. It doesn't work like that. No, no, I, I, it, it goes deeper than that. I don't think it's because, I mean, I'm not the world's greatest philosopher, I would admit. It goes a bit deeper than the, it was just, just over your heads, you peasants. There is a way they go about things that I feel is fundamentally off-key. Several times in the sequel Matrix films, characters will stop and have a nice long chat about philosophy. Oh my goodness, why are we having long conversations about philosophy? And there's a few things that just stick in my throat whilst they're having it as well. There's a scene, there's two instances I'm going to bring up here. There's a scene in, in Zion and, and Neo is up late at night and one of the elders of Zion comes out and they start talking about stuff and the elder says, well look, we've got machines here that we're dependent on for our life support. So in a way, are we truly free of machines? And he says, well, yes, we, we are not so observant to these machines because we control them. Well, sure, we could smash them all up, repeats the elder, but then where would we be? It's like, no, no, you're, you're confusing necessity of, of life support for being subservient to life support. There is a difference. I'm, I'm not a master. Oxygen is not my master, but I am utterly dependent on a constant supply of it. Does that make sense? And, and so these things kind of, they kind of stick in my head and it's like, ah. And other things as well, and this is more in particular what I'm talking about. It's in the third film. He meets the program in the subway that's smuggling through his daughter and he stops and, you know, he realizes he, this, program has created another pro- a child program with another program and is fostering her for safety and he says ah so uh, programs feel love and the program responds love is a word it, what is important is the meaning behind the word and it's like yes that's why he said love we know what love means he was conveying that meaning to you you really are splitting hairs here and i can't think if, if you want to have a conversation about purpose and about uh, things that compel you and how free are you exactly. I can't feel there would have been a better way to convey this struggle than stopping all the action to have a philosophical conversation about which is slightly irritating. Yeah, well, what you're pinpointing there is that when the Wachowski sat down to tell a Manichaean story of good versus evil, I do not think that they fully appreciated 
that their entire enculturation would come into play and make that a thing that would happen easily. And I don't think they equally realised that the minute that they tried to step outside of that, because their enculturation wasn't there to get their back, they would overreach that they were not yet at a place where they could discuss some of this philosophical stuff without doing exactly what you've said, appearing to be splitting hairs. I mean, philosophy, that's its purpose, is to split hairs about various concepts and try to unpick. I thought it was some kind of search for truth, wasn't it? Yeah, which is which you do by breaking things down. You try and find. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not by... dissing philosophy. Philosophy is important. We don't have philosophy. We don't have science. You don't have justice. Well, yeah, it's not that. I'm just saying that when you talk about the philosophy of good versus evil, because we're enculturated into that idea, and it's not really good versus evil. It's this fact that human beings are particularly tuned biologically, neurochemically, to spot cheaters. So it's easy for us to think, well, I'm not a cheater and that person is a cheater. And that gives us our, our Manichaean good versus evil framework on things. We're not neurochemically tuned to say, well, everyone has a point of view. You know, these are things that people have to meditate upon and become wise. And you can understand the words of it. But what's important is not the words of it, but the concept that lies behind it. Aha. And I don't think that they were ready to to tell a story about a more complex philosophical framework when they sat down to write the script. And that's why the script suddenly becomes stilted. And it's like, here's some action. And now here's a quick five minute philosophy lecture. And here's another bit of action. And here's another philosophy lecture. Whereas in the first one, it kind of blends the concepts together far more skillfully because the concepts are ones that the people telling the story are far more comfortable with. Okay. And to circle in on i think what is a a big problem the ending is a little oblique essentially as far as i understand it smith possesses neo and thus they cancel each other out because they are opposites of one another that's philosophically why i understand what happens it is however bloody vague as to what happens on screen and why it was necessary to happen that way it really would have benefited from someone being there for whom this could be explained to you know, just lay it out in, in more simpler terms. When I initially watched it, I just thought he possesses Neo and therefore Smith is in Neo and therefore the machine mind simply reabsorbs Neo into the source again and that's how we get rid of Smith. I thought that's what happened. Maybe that is what happened. We're not really told. Was this fair to lay down the end of the trilogy? It is kind of a vague, not really positively explained ending. Well, there are several factors at play at the end, and not least of them is this is the same time as as Riddick becomes a franchise that breaks out of the confines of being just cinematic. And there are two computer games, at least one of which is very good. I mean, the other one is probably very good as well. I haven't played it yet. Uh, I have a copy uh, waiting to be played uh, on the pile of shame at this time. Uh, But the fact is that uh, certainly Escape from Butcher Bay is a fine piece of canon about Riddick and tells you lots of things. There was a conversation that I heard on another podcast saying that that his race, they'd kind of retconned that it was his race, the Furians, that uh, had the shine put naturally in their eyes. I'm like, no, 
That is not what Chronicles of Riddick says at all, because in Butcher Bay, which was written by the same people and was heavily, you know, had input from Vin Diesel and they were really into this computer game, you go through the bit where he has the shine put in his eyes. And so it's a real thing. That's actually happened. It's canon. It just happens to have happened in a, in a computer game and not in a, a film. Well, the same point, The Matrix is doing Enter the Matrix as a, a companion piece to the second movie in which you follow two characters. And, and there is one sort of elbow in The Matrix Reloaded, is that you have these two characters, Niobe and Ghost, who appear throughout the movie and you're like, why do these characters appear throughout the movie? Who are they again? What's going on? And then you go away and play Enter the Matrix and you understand that they're doing all this vital stuff that has to do with, quote unquote, the plot. Uh, plus the Matrix uh, gate begat the Animatrix, which explained some more stuff about the Matrix. And if you put all of this stuff together, you do get a complete world built but people who watch the first movie and the second movie are not necessarily going to watch uh 45 minutes to an hour of uh, animated shorts plus uh, also play a computer game just to get the whole story this was why this whole multi-platform franchise is now not a thing people do because the audiences are not transferable and people who play computer games just care about is it a decent computer game uh, to which the answer is on the GameCube it's alright on every other platform no yeah well um, I, th- I think games definitely exist these days in other cold in their own little cul-de-sac or but I think when it comes to other features you know we are in the age of the webisode. But these tend to be things that if you miss them, it's okay. You can get by without them. There's very few instances. Exactly. I want to quickly pass an eye over the Animatrix, however. They have writing credits of Flight of the Osiris, which yes. is basically leads into the Enter the Matrix and uh, Matrix Reloaded. Fine. It's just two people fight, and then they realize they're being chased by these machines, and they dump info in the Matrix. They die. Uh, then there's the uh, two parts of uh, the Second Renaissance, uh, which yep. tells you the history of how the machines took over. I have no tr- real problems with this because it's just kind of conveying you the background information. And then they do the kid story, and the kid story is possibly the most superfluous one of the Animatrix, I would say. It sets up the kid as an important character for the next two films, but overall, he's just a kid. He's the guy, he's, he's, he's young and earnest, and he throws himself in the fight like a good little chap, and he survives the tale, and we feel better for it. He's kind of the nice brother of, of Mouse from the first film. This is one of the things that is the bad legacy of The Matrix, is that this has led to the point where movie studios don't hear pitches about scrappy little guy who comes through where the stakes are low. I mean, if we look back, uh, way back at things like Smokey and the Bandit, a film about two men driving beer across state lines, and that's the stakes, if they get caught they get like a fine or something. I don't know. It's like, oh, wow, that's exciting and action-packed. Well, it is exciting and it is action-packed because not every goddamn person has to save the goddamn universe every goddamn day. But since The Matrix, they do. Mm. And I think the Wachowskis even began to realise this as they went through. I said, well, okay, so, yeah, the Neo story is a good hook into the world of The Matrix, but... We don't want to tell a story about Neo alone. And I think there is a desperation in the other two movies about, no, no, these other guys, they're cool too. 
And everyone's like, yeah, but what about Keanu? I think I think because the, the first Matrix, it is the story of Neo realizing he is the one. I mean, the principal thing at stake is we've got to go rescue Morpheus. But, you know, we're, we're rooting for the guy who realizes he, he is God of his own destiny. And then after that, I do feel there's a bit of a pause on character development for the next two films. No one particularly changes. Neo is untouchable by anything. Even an army of smiths can barely stop him. And so it all of a sudden it turns what is beautiful, well choreographed, fast paced action fighting into things where, yeah, the, you said this yourself, the best sequence in Matrix Reloaded is the motorway. Why? Because Morpheus and Trinity can die. You genuinely feel fear for Morpheus when he takes off his glasses and you can see his naked human eyes and he faces off against, against an agent on the roof of a vehicle because you know, while Morpheus is good, he is mortal. He, this could go badly for him. Yeah, well, I think there's more to uh, that sequence than that. But uh, I think the other thing that which the critics point out on the on the uh, accompanying commentary is it's entirely pointless. I mean, that scene is 25 minutes mm. of back and forth for no real reason, and it's an amazing sequence. It's fantastic. But, yeah, it doesn't really add anything. And that's one of the things that they say. It's like, well, you might enjoy it. Fine. But it's not. It doesn't serve any purpose. And the other thing that's it's impossible to define is that the way that the that architect character at the end comes in, what he's saying to Neo is you, you're the, you're like the seventh one. And this is where the Wachowskis are trying to say this isn't right. There isn't a person who leads you into the promised land. People do this together. And in fact, the one is like a, it's like a, a mislead, a misdirect. It's a, it's a bad joke. It's a, it's a trap. And Neo is supposed to realize that and then become something more because he realizes that this doesn't work. The writer of The Princess Bride, whose name temporarily... Robert Altman? No, William Golding. Yes. William Goldman also wrote Adventures in the Screen Trade, in which he talks about the fact that when you come to write a script, the most important thing to do when you're actually going to write it all is to stick to a spine. Like, this is a story about X. It's your elevator pitch. It's like every scene must serve that spine. Well... The first Matrix has a spine. The other two movies have seven spines each, and that works out just as well as if any mm. living creature had seven spines. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It's a mini series that wants to be a movie that wants to be a, it did, yeah, it, it just goes all over the place. And, and so that is where things start to fight with one another. You're not sure what the whole deal with Neo is, because that's not what the movie is supposed to be about in the centre of it. Although it would help if it was, because then you could explain that. And any scene that wasn't directly related to explaining what the deal with Neo was would be excised and make it more coherent. But they don't want it to be about that. They want it to be about, you know, a group of resistance, about humanity triumphing, but not in a kind of conquest way, but learning, you know, the machines and the humans becoming, uh, a, you know, species that now have to learn to live together 
and they want it to be about that. But they have to finish Neo's story because that's what everyone wants. Oh, and then, just while we're on the, the topic, because of the multi-platform thing, at the end of The Matrix, it's great that the machines and the humans now have to live together in a sort of uneasy cultural melting pot uh, because we're about to make an MMO based on the Matrix, and that's the setup for that. So there's there's commercial, there's philosophical. You know, it's not just incoherence in itself, but incoherence in the aims of the actual project that bring it down. So yeah, that's well, that's why it all. I, I can't actually, I can't actually see them getting a credit here for Matrix Online. No, yes, there oh, it ma- is. No, no. They, oh right, they, yeah, they would have been creative consultants, but they, 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 there isn't enough plot in an MMO for them to have actually really written anything. I wouldn't have thought. Yes, overall it's it's fairly aimless, and I've tried to find some through plotline for it. And there were some interesting ideas there, like different servers could have different endings depending on how the players did and things like that. But ultimately, the game failed to have enough players and the plug was pulled and it came to a very abrupt end. And now I'm sure that copy sits on people's shelves. It's completely redundant. You can't even log on anymore. Don't do anything. No. Oh, oh let's, let us not forget, bearing in mind the fact that it is relevant and they did more shooting because they had enough money to do that. The Path of Neo. The video yes. game where which, which, they tried to fix what wasn't wrong with the first one. Yes, they they changed the ending, so instead Mr. Smith turns himself into a giant thing made out of cars, which all flies. We've got a giant metal Mr. Smith, which Neo can fly around and fight like a good old video game boss, and then he beats him. And then it just ends. I mean, that's more satisfying in terms of a video game. Giant metal god, let's smash. But, yeah... Hmm. Also, just to kick it on the on the in one more time before as we head out the door, you know the the whole second film he 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 walks away from his from his destiny of re-entering the source so he can save Trinity, and then Trinity just dies again in the next film anyway, which makes it feel a bit. When you watch them back to back, it does feel a bit nihilistic and pointless. Sorry. Um. Yeah, I would I would uh, possibly say as well uh, while we're on the the topic. You know, you can throw a rock in either of the second two movies and hit something that's gone wrong. Uh, one of the problems with this is that it remains a worthy attempt to introduce, to raise the level generally of what people are trying to do in genre and science fiction cinema. Certainly, I would always say there was Kowski's in pretty much, I haven't seen Street Racer, but I'd say pretty much they always have very big and interesting ideas somewhere in there. What they seem to like is some way of focusing it down onto something that's easily digestible. This is what's so heartbreaking about it. You know, you go and you what you know, the people who get a lot of criticism in filmmaking get a lot of criticism because of the commercialization of it. And the Wachowskis, the, well, the thing they want to commercialize is the movie. They want people to go and watch the movie, which is exactly what they don't care about toys. They get, they, they kind of got interested in the video games because it seemed like a thing that was possibly related to cinema and then of subsequently gone no that doesn't really work so they haven't done that and yeah they, they've just totally always been passionate about delivering the cinematic experience how, no matter how wrong that goes and which is why i think you can't entirely write them off and the fact that they the the, the downside of this is that because they give people so much to moan about it means that it's actually backfired 
that unless you try and raise the game and then you actually raise the game and you always produce something stellar that really pushes you know the intellectual boundaries of what the genre cinema is doing at this time you are lost because what happens is that focus groups oh, I didn't like this it was too brainy it was too pretentious it was too and then you actually have the reverse effect on cinema because people think that because something can be moaned about extensively that it wasn't simultaneously worthwhile which is why I don't like moaning about the matrix particularly and some of the other stuff i don't mind moaning about the stuff that in the end is dunderheaded uh which we'll get on to shortly (laughs) but but yeah i won't moan about things that give it a good college try and actually do have some fairly worthwhile material in them even if it doesn't always work out and the closest thing they've come to something that's seriously integrated and complex is their production script and script for v for vendetta which is their their post matrix product even though they didn't direct it uh, but the director james mcteague worked with them very closely on the matrix he's like the third wakowski not a wakowski by the fact that his second name is mcteague and not wakowski at all which is unfortunate because if it was wakowski he would be one of the wakowskis and that would make this very thoroughly a wakowski's movie which the v for vendetta clearly is and and in fact, I, I rewatched it last night for the first time since I've been to see it at the cinema. And fascinating movie. Uh, yes. I think I'm going to say it is underrated. This is the one where it's just full of really rich ideas. I mean, you could literally write a book just analysing V for Vendetta. Uh, there's there's so much there to talk about on a textual level. Uh, but I, th- I think, again, it doesn't always get it across brilliantly. I know it's an adaptation of a comic book. I know the comic book was written more as a reaction against Thatcherism. And in the age this film came out, it's seen as more of a reaction against George W. Bush and the culture we had around us at the time there. Sort of authoritarian Fox News backed, slightly disturbing turn of events that we felt out of control of that was going on around us. Well, at, you know, it was in the zeitgeist, shall we say. And so it scored a lot of points of being relevant. It has certainly had an enormous chiming influence, I think, on a lot of kind of, shall we say, socio-political groups on the internet, because they've, they've really seized on this whole kind of, you know, uh, the, the whole kind of anonymous, grinning, uh, Guy Fawkes mask. Uh, identification, anonymous anarchism and things like that. They've really latched onto this as well. And, you know, you can't kill ideas. Ideas are bulletproof. That is definitely a mantra of which the internet is, is definitely very proud of. So I'd say it's an incredibly relevant film. I would even go so far as to say it's actually an important film. Uh, I'm not sure if it's actually, however, a good film. I would agree with much of what you say uh, with the following caveats. Number one, at the time, I mean, this is 10 years ago now, in Britain, I think that it had an unusual flavour because they managed to preserve and push forward the Britishness of V for Vendetta, that it is Britain that is under the jackboot. Now, I can't speak for being American, but the fact that it is quite British like they've really gone to town with the president. It has that kind of watchman feeling of being preserved in aspic 
of like, yes, we must preserve the Britishness because the original thing was a British anti-Thatcher screed and we want to preserve that, that notion. You know, it's got Stephen Fry in it for gosh sake. How much more British can you be? Yeah, it's all really, really, really British. And in 2005, UKIP wasn't a thing. We were about to have a general election, or we just had one, and Labour got back in. So the, the government was fairly stable, rubbish, uh, incompetent, and not, but not really that, you know, a little bit sleazy, but all governments are. Really, in 2005, the British people did not feel that blowing up the Houses of Parliament would achieve much as a, yeah. as a people, I don't think. So you kind of went, meh, yeah. Last night, I was a hundred percent behind that. I was like, yes, the symbol of freedom we've been ground down. It just goes to show that when you get a government you're really unhappy with, you could put something like that on and you say, and I realized then, well, yes, it is, it does pinch, it pings me right now. Like I watch V for Vendetta today and I'm like, yeah, anonymous, which is a thing that came out of that whole V for Vendetta movie comic book thing. Hey, yeah, no, yeah, anonymous and, and freedom and, and all of this and the ideals and blah, blah, blah. And I realized that when I saw it 10 years ago, I didn't feel any of that. And that means it is not actually satirical. Network gets you whenever you watch it. You're mad as hell and you won't take it anymore. Any day of the week you watch Network, that is going to happen because the movie itself is satirical and it, it it gets into your brain and it talks about things in a way that makes you angry. Viva Netta happened to make me angry last night because it happened to be on the television in front of me at the right time. But when I watched it when it wasn't the right time, it didn't really stir me at all. Therefore, its satire rating has to be virtually nil. It doesn't have passion for what it t- talks about. It produces it in exactly the same way as Watchmen, in a kind of museum piece kind of way. It has that whole 80s agitprop kind of feeling about it, which probably in 2005 in America meant that it wasn't satirical there either because it didn't feel like they were talking about the Bush administration. It felt like they were talking about something that happened a long way away, far ago in a land where people had wonky teeth and no, drank no, no. a lot of tea. I think it did have a big influence. Well, you know, in terms of... Well, I think V for Vendetta had an influence and the film spread that influence because V for Vendetta is satirical. That's weird. You've made a film of a satirical cultural artifact that itself is not satirical. Yes, obviously, anonymous masks are the Guy Fawkes mask from V for Vendetta. But I don't think they're from the film of V for Vendetta. I think that many people who are intelligent enough to have adopted that. Well, then, then there are people who don't know about it either way. They just know that Anonymous are, you know, are leet griefers and they wear these funny masks. You know, it's like there's a, there's a Venn diagram. It's like people who wear the Guy Fawkes mask who know that it comes from V for Vendetta and who have got that from the graphic novel and people who wear the Guy Fawkes mask because they don't know what it means. They just know it means Anonymous. And then there's a, tiny little intersect of people who are wearing it because the film is one of their favorite most boss films ever and i don't think that's a very big number of people at all people wear the guy fawkes mask because of v for vendetta not because of the film of v for vendetta 
I disagree. I mean, of course, the mask originates from the original coin book. You're quite right. The film, however, popularized it. I think the overall message of the film, I think it did chime with Americans. I, I appreciate it's got a British setting and perhaps to make, it gives them an element of detachment for them. I don't know. But I think the overall themes of, of just, this truth about freedom wanting to break through this fog which is being pulled down over the masses definitely chime with the zeitgeist in America at the time. Okay, saying, well, I can't, I can't speak for that because I don't, I wasn't there and I don't well, know. Well, I, I wasn't there either. Um, but moving to Australia, I was, of course, I was removed a step from British politics and I only had Australian politics. Blech. But of course, like, you still follow American politics. American politics, you follow around the world. What happens in America is important everywhere. And so you, I was still slightly finger on the pulse about what was going down over there and how just how exhausted and tired people felt about the fact that, oh my God, George Bush has just got himself re-elected again. This is the most miserable thing to ever happen in the history of the world. Whatever your feelings on that might be. I think there was a definite counterculture that was, that was receptive to the messages in the film. And yes, people have taken up that mask and the mask has taken on a life of its own since that film. But I think the film definitely popularized it. If you don't have V for Meta, that math doesn't mean anything. You know, it's, it's the ultimate troll face for the internet now and meanings change over time as all things do. But I, I still think it was, it, it was one of those films where you must go watch Viva Vendetta kind of a reaction to it because of what it was saying, not necessarily because it was, it's Star Wars, but with, you know, Orwellian and 1984 Third Reich, uh, things going on. Yeah, well, I, I, all I know is that it didn't really chime over here in UK. I wanted to, I wanted to concede anyway. that because you just had you had new old Labour by that stage, and and goodness me, as, as as bad as people feel Labour can be on times, goodness me, there is a genuine sense that my good uh, goodness, are the Conservatives actually evil? I'm beginning to question this. Yeah, well, I, that's the thing. I mean, ten years on, V for Vendetta is something that I can now put on and watch and feel angry about the state of politics in the UK. And that does make me wonder. I mean, I think the real acid test would be they've had, you know, uh, nearly a decade of Obama in in the States now, and you can't really get angry in the same way about that as much as... Because even the, the meme, you know, thanks, Obama, that's, uh, that's like a joke. It's like it's not his fault that America is in the... the can you you want to know whose fault it is look back to when that was a new film and there you'll find that he's just firefighting i mean that's the it must be the most depressing double term presidency ever to realize that you've spent no wonder he spent so much time with his selfie stick you know <laughs> because it's like what have i really done my favorite thing to say about uh, obama is just imagine how screwed we'd all be if that man wasn't in charge of the most powerful nation uh, on the on the planet well, for the last 10 years because honestly every time he appears it's like gold he's the coolest man on earth and he's running the united states so if he wasn't how bad would things be you can they're pretty bad you think that and i think that i think in america there's a much different bubble about the wave of disappointment and frustration they have with them i don't think they've stopped oh, yeah, to, cons- no. to consider how bad things to oh, be no, without totally. it I mean, well, they- the point is that being able to go places and be articulate and be on the ball and to know everything about you know have a, a good solid opinion that's actually based in some kind of experience about everything when the country's in such a mess it just looks glib I can understand totally that sentiment, but then, yes, you do, uh, it's really hard to then go, yeah, but if this capable 
confident, intelligent, articulate man is not able to pull us out of the mire, what chance would uh, anyone else have had? It would be really big of someone to think that, and I can understand why people don't. But it doesn't change the fact that that's true. Mm. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. But yes, and therefore, if they sat, if someone sat down and watched V for Vendetta in the States today, I think it would fail to resonate with them yes. now yes. in the same way that it didn't resonate with me 10 years ago. And therefore, it resonates by accident. And therefore, any day of the week that anyone ever watches Network, People could get angry about it, and therefore one would have to say, I mean, it's a fairly dumb thing to say, but it is greater than. But it's that basis for comparison I'm trying to get at. Uh, v for Vendetta is not the great movie. It's fine. That's the problem with it. Yeah. It's fine. It's it's certainly a good movie, and it's a movie I'm like, I watched it, and I was like, yeah, I might buy this, actually. But at the same time, I'm like, it's not... I mean, it's not a movie, like I say, that I'm going to sit somewhere down and go, you must watch this in the way that, you know, if I'm down the pub with someone and go, and of course in network, what's network? You've never seen network, take them home from the pub, sit them down, make them watch it now. I'm never going to do that with V for Vendetta, but I would with network. I think if you're doing a philosophy degree, you watch The Matrix. If you're doing a political degree, you watch V for Vendetta. Well, it's pol- political philosophy. It's more of the same. Yeah. Which is why it's a big surprise that the next thing on the slate for us to have a quick look at, and it will be a quick look, I'm imagining, uh, it's another one of the disappeared movies like Bound, Speed Racer, totally disappeared. Don't know where that went. I know that it was terrible, but I don't know where oh, right. it went. Well, I'm surprised you skipped over the invasion, which they were brought in to do a rewrite on the film and stick it oh, in James the ending. McT- well, yeah, they did. They're right, okay. I, I came into the invasion and I thought, well... The problem with that is that's like a surgery job. James McTeague even did a bit of direction, helped out a bit there. Basically, that was a big, big old mess. And it's a bit like saying, oh, well, we're talking about, you know, Quentin Tarantino. I'm surprised we didn't talk about his script doctoring on Crimson Tide or whatever it was. (laughs) It's like, well, it's not really. They did that as a little bit of, you know, handyman work. It's their equivalent of fixing someone's drain. I mean, the one thing that's remarkable about the invasion, and I'm not going to lay it at their, the Wachowski's feet or James McTeague's feet, is that it's the only version of the invasion of the body snatchers uh, that I know of that has absolutely no traction whatsoever. And mm. it's like, well, really? How do you badly write that? Or well, you, I, I think the fault lines... Not at all disturbing. The fault line starts with the fact they call it the invasion. They wanted to bury the fact it was a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, and, and it's, it's, it's much like we talked about other films that are hiding, hiding their light because they're ashamed of it somehow. Anyway. Well, I, I think the other part about that is, though, that what uh, people have to learn is that if the person who wrote Twilight can write a Twilightified version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and it is more interesting than your remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you've really screwed that up because hmm. the host is more interesting than the invasion. That, that's all that needs to be said about that, really. So, yeah, Speed Racer, uh, that gave me a headache. How about you? I haven't seen this uh, cinematic masterpiece. I understand it's based on their love for the cartoonist children, so this is obviously a passion project of theirs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it t- totally is. Like, you, you know, it is hard to be... I mean, when you've gone, you know, bound, 
the Matrix trilogy, V for Vendetta, when the next thing on the slate is Speed Racer, and then it is lots of people going, I am the fastest racer in the world, ha ha! You know, and it just goes on like that, and then, you know, the person driving around massive neon pinball machines for two hours. It, yeah, it, it's, it's the, I mean, this is the thing. There's a big crossover, I think, between the Mukowskis and Peter Jackson. Whereas Peter Jackson, I think, sees himself as a sort of carpenter of fantasy cinema, he does the job and it is a great table or whatever. The Wachowski sees themselves as the sort of philosopher poets of fantasy and sci-fi cinema. But the two things have a lot of crossover because Speed Racer is the Lord of the Rings of Speed Racer. It is the Hobbit of Speed Racer. It is as much Speed Racer as could be possibly put in one place at one time. And as a result, I got a headache. Sue got a headache and the two adolescent boys in the cinema with us. And they were like, that was all that was in the cinema in this viewing that we went to see were texting throughout. They weren't even looking at the screen. They didn't care. They were bored. And it's like, if you can make a film with all the fast cars and all of that stuff in it, and the, the, you know, two 13, 14 year old boys are like, this is too stupid even for me. You're like, well, you failed. Big fail. And no wonder, and therefore, it has disappeared. I can't say it's a shock that that film has just got buried. Mm. I, I remember at the time someone speculating that they quite liked the sort of uh, high sugar content rush of it. And they said, well, it's going to disappear and then people are going to be sorry that they didn't give it a chance. Well, it, they were half right. It has disappeared. Nobody's sorry. It's not a, an underrated classic of yesteryear. It's just a headache on celluloid waiting to give you a migraine. And we didn't even have Speed Race on television as kids, so we can't even be outraged about it. Although I understand um, that actual fans are saying it, it actually gels okay with the series. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I think that the difference is, though, that Speed Racer, the, the anime, is, you know, 20-minute chunks of anime, whereas this is two hours of pulse-pounding neon pinball machineness just it was a terrible thing i don't want to talk about it anymore well uh, uh next up they are producers on ninja assassin which i assume is yes. about an assassin that kills ninjas Please don't <coughs> well i think that this is where i can understand their speed racer thing because unlike speed racer which i have no prior knowledge of ninja films this is like a a, a love letter to uh, the ninja films of the 1980s, given a whole 2000s kind of sheen of CGI virtuosity. I think one of the things that they've kind of screwed up here, I'm not sure, maybe there were, I don't, because unfortunately it bombed so hard, we don't know. It looks like there's a lot of CGI blood gushing. But I think, given the way that they are, it's probably like one of these things, we go, oh, so fake CGI... They probably did a lot of practicals and that we just don't know that they're practicals because they augmented them with CGI. It, they don't strike me as the type of people who will be like, yeah, CGI blood will be fine. Now, besides which, I've seen Blood, the Last Vampire, the live action film, which is all CGI blood. And now I come to think about watching it last night. There did seem to be some practicalness to some of the effects some of them were clearly ridiculously cgi augmented but some of them looked like they could have had actual liquid and things exploding and what have you and it basically 
it takes all the sort of ninja cliches of the 1980s, like whispering and things being in the shadows and, and you know, and the, all the jokes people have about, uh, God, this room is absolutely full of ninjas. What do you mean? It's just us here. That's what you think. You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, uh, uh, and it, it says this is where it all came from. This is this is the sort of uber ninja thing. And it is immensely silly. And they have a character in it who is entirely there just to provide because there's not much dialogue in the ninjury parts. And there's quite a lot of cliched ninja compound. You must loathe all weaknesses, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But there isn't enough. Ham- I think they got to a point with the script pass where they're like, do you know what we're missing? Ham-fisted, quasi-action movie uh, exposition. We need some of that. And so they have a character whose entire job in the movie is just to deliver ham-fisted, clunky exposition that means nothing. Um, I mean, it's a real movie. I mean, it's got, you know, they, they don't have uh, one movie that was made for a Hong Kong audience and another movie uh, that, that wasn't made for a Hong Kong audience that have just been mashed together. But there is a nod to that because right at the beginning, it is like two movies are happening in separate places. And then they do this kind of thing like, and now they are together. Now the, the Oriental characters and the Occidental characters are on screen at the same time. Ah, we fooled you into thinking that it was an ninja movie from the 1980s yeah i mean i think that's probably the biggest thing is that it's not enough of a pastiche to be truly affectionate in that way uh and it's not enough of an action movie on in its own right not to feel burdened by these constant nods and winks to uh cheaper grittier cinema from the past so yeah that that's ninja assassin which i watched as well last night and it is it's a perfectly fun hour and a half, but you have to be, if not an enthusiast of the uh, ninja movie, at least you have to be aware that that's what it's it's trying to snuggle in with. Uh, so yeah, Speed Racer and Ninja Assassin, I think, are a big brain break. One for the Wachowskis and one for uh, James McTeague. I think McTeague was probably the one who was more into his ninjas because he directed Ninja Assassin. Uh, and then there's a script. I think what happened was that um, they picked up the script from the original writer but kept him involved, but then zhuzhed it up a bit because the other writer is J. Michael Straczynski, so they got him to do a bit just to make it, you know, a little bit better. And that's the thing, you come out at the end with a, an immensely okay movie. I mean, it's it truly passes an hour and a half. It's got some little funny bits in it, and it's got some nice action bits in it, and it, but it never really commits to being one thing or another, and that kind of lets it down in the end. But yes, it's perfectly fine. I would mm. I would recommend it if you if it's there and you've got nothing else to do. Uh, let's put let's let's make it slightly better than that. If it's a choice between that or the Poseidon remake with Kurt Russell, watch the Ninja film, not Poseidon. It's like up there. It's the next film up on the list of mediocre movies that you may as well watch at some point. You, you had me at J. Michael Chazinski. Anyway, moving on to, I suppose, uh, what I feel is going to be a little highlight of today's show, Cloud Atlas. Today I woke up with every intention of going to the cinema and watching Jupiter Ascending for the sole reason that it would give me rights to have a good, long, humorous complaint about it all. 
Instead, however, I just, yeah, I didn't quite feel up to it. It took me two hours and twenty dollars to watch that. Ugh. So instead, I went and rented out of my one remaining DVD shop, Cloud Atlas. I'm jolly glad I did too. There's lots to talk about here, isn't there, Leo? Yes, there is quite a lot to talk about. Uh, first of all, uh, obviously not a, I mean, the Wachowskis wrote the script, but it's a bit like the V for Vendetta thing. It's an adaptation. And then they directed it and uh, it's another film. Doesn't quite work. I can't pretend that it, it totally works because it totally doesn't really work all the way through. But bits of it work. But that's kind of the point because it's, it's like six half hour films all mashed together, isn't it, Ron? It can't be denied that the passion is there. This isn't what I embrace about cloud atlas i and that, this is the one thing i really i get kind of annoyed with people who are like you know it's a mess isn't it though isn't it the intention of cloud atlas is purely artistic there can be no cynicism about trying to make a quick this is like the anti-transformers it is like the complete opposite of the transformers franchise they can't from the day dot that they decided yeah we won't really want to make a film of this cloud atlas book they cannot have been like oh yes because that'll make us a quick buck absolutely not they toiled over this and it yeah it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work quite so well but i think it's a remarkable movie i think it needs some space and distance from being part of the sort of release schedule mill of just more here's more films and here's more films here's more films i think given time i think it will establish itself and nestle as a as a nice thing that exists that use a sort of unique movie experience i think that's far more and which is weirdly what the people who i didn't agree with about speed racer said about speed racer but i do think that cloud atlas is more like that because it has more in it uh personally that's what i feel anyway how about you ian how do i feel you know it's 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 hard to be angry at this film Yes, there's there's definite flaws here, and there was quite a few times where I was not lost, but it, it, for the first hour of the film, it felt like I was still watching the start of the film. You would just start to get interested in a particular setup, and then it would move on and begin a new setup, and you reach those new characters in that new setting with a certain sense of resistance, because the other thing was just getting interesting. And the film even apologises for all this nonsense at the beginning as well, which I thought was very fourth wall breaking of them. Uh, but overall, in, in terms of the ambition and the ideas and having this multi-layered story taking place simultaneously in different time periods, I can't really complain. This is the sort of thing I am, I wouldn't, I'm seriously into. It is just fascinating. The ambition uh, was enough to sustain me, I think, through to the end. I admit I did have to take a break or two. But... Uh, which I would not have been able to do in the cinema. But there's just so many things about it which are, which are interesting, and I just want to talk about some more. I'm still kind of processing it in my head. I mean, overall, I have to say, oddly enough, some of the weaker sequences I felt were the science fiction ones, particularly the Neo-Soul sequence. If you remember, they're having a good old chase on a, on a futuristic flying motorcycle biker while, while jet planes fly overhead shooting bullets at them, and it's terribly exciting, isn't it, children? It's actually oddly... It felt flat. That's a strange thing to say, because, you know, I should be into this too. 
But against the human drama we've been building up, and suddenly we have this prosaic chase sequence where you know they're just going to get away again at the end of it all, it kind of had me feeling a bit flat. But there are so many interesting characters. I mean, I, I could moan about things like, oh, we have tortured gay love affair that ends tragically, but that's down to the original author, David Mitchell, more than it is to Wiskowski's. I believe the Wiskowski's only... They only directed, they directed the futurist, the two futuristic settings, and I believe they did the Pacific Island and the Cambridge, Edinburgh 1936 sections as well. I think someone else directed the other sections, but again, it was a team effort, shall we say. So I, I think it's, it's fair for them to have a, a collective credit overall. It's a sort of, in, the, the way the same actors are constantly reappearing every time and, and a little joy when you realise that, oh, this time he's playing that character, is he? And also consulting the Wikipedia afterwards and realising that Hugh Grant was in absolutely every single time period. I only actually spotted him twice. He was also the leader of those cannibal human beings in the oh, future. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I didn't I realise that, that until I saw, until I saw the uh, cast list in, the, in Wikipedia. It's so many ways you're going to sit back and try and look at it. If, if, if as I assume they're saying, the the actors are playing reincarnations of themselves. Am I correct in that, or are they switching around? Yes, that is that is kind of the, that was kind of the concept that they it's their energy going through time is, is so it's the same soul but in a different different body place. Which so. makes which makes the uh, Tom Hanks character quite interesting because he goes he goes from like a murderer, then he's like a, a somewhat dodgy hotel manager. Uh, then he's, then he becomes like he's, he's a violent thug in present day, and uh, finally, you know, in the future, in, in he's a coward in the future, haunted by this ghost that's constantly berating him to do his worst instincts, and he kind of rises above it and becomes a hero and redeems himself at the end. So that was that was kind of an interesting arc when you look through it all. Halle Berry, I feel I feel she suffers by being reincarnated because it's, I don't know, it's hard to describe. I'm sure she's a good actress, but sometimes I feel when I saw her in her in the future version, it somehow made me not believe her because it, it, juxtapositioning that with a 1970s version of herself, I don't know. It, it kind of made me go, oh, they're just actors and they're just acting. I'm, I'm sorry to say, maybe that's being harsh. I don't know. Hugo Weaving, your perennial villain, or perennial for for a Wiskowski film, is back again. In more of a supporting villain role, really, overall. And it's just, I think at this point, whereas you've mentioned the words Hugo Weaving, we don't need to go into the agent, but uh, one thing about V for Vendetta that definitely does work that should be mentioned, if we could cast our mind back, is Hugo Weaving. Uh, Hugo Weaving doing the world's best uh, vocal is that Colin Firth impression uh, for a start. I mean, I was listening to it going, knowing it's Hugo Weaving, going, he sounds quite a lot like Colin Firth, in fact. Uh, but his performance, you know, you put a cloak and a hat and a mask on most people and you may as well put a dummy with some strings onto the stage because the the fact that he brings V to life in that movie cannot be downplayed because it is it is a remarkable performance uh, and it, for, and for a man in those with those problems in his performance uh, circumstances. Yes, Sorry, again, he was. He was also a last-minute replacement as well. I understand. In fact, some scenes in the Viva Vendetta, you have original actor in it with Hugo Weaving voicing over it. Yes, I, I think the um, um, fried egg sequence is one of them. Anyway, 
Yes, and of course, the overall theme, if there's any you can glean from this in the, different, the six different time zones you work in, is, of course, individuals overcoming the oppression of their times uh, and uh, obtaining freedom or, in some cases, death as a result. But there's a kind of domino consequence, sometimes just a little thing that follows through to the next section when you sit down and look at it chronologically in uh, having a small way contributing towards the efforts of other people overcoming their dark tyrannies, be be what they are. I'm not so sure about the nurses in drag, but I think once you've committed to having actors playing every incarnation of that character, you kind of have to follow through. There is stated to be a whole thing about the idea of passing culture down and how, you know, the words that were said yesterday form the basis for things that happen today, which are completely out of the scope of the expectation of the person who laid them down and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, Cloud Atlas is, again, I mean, you know, you keep having to describe things or I find myself having to describe things as interesting failures, uh, that the only real uh, triumph unqualified triumph of their career is the matrix and that all other triumphs are qualified somehow Uh, like i would have preferred for people to come out of cloud atlas going well yeah it didn't quite work but this is far more interesting cinema than a lot of other cinema that's about at the moment and and that's what the, the prevailing attitude should you know in my opinion quote unquote should have been in fact what the prevailing attitude is is oh not these guys again and all that oh you're trying to be clever uh, which leads me to a a a thing where i start to wonder whether jupiter ascending is in fact a sort of to a certain extent a tongue-in-cheek oh so you want us to make dumb action cinema do you Uh, well well, if anything i mean i haven't seen jupiter ascending but i know of what it is about and it, it seems to me it's a spring as a kind of spiritual sequel out of the Neil Saul sequence in Cloud Atlas, where you have you know, genetically re-engineered people living in a very controlled, structured life against a, against a tyranny, things flying around and things falling from great heights. Um, and those things, and there's a resistance as well. So those things kind of make me think, oh, the Neo Saul sequence was, was kind of something that kind of inspired Jupiter Ascending. I think they extrapolated perhaps Jupiter Ascending out of the sequence of, of the film. I'm so glad I watched Cloud Atlas because it altered the trajectory of my thinking. My thinking was so much like, was kind of, yes, pretty much as you say, gosh darn it, Matrix is darn fine, but since then they've been a bit Lucas, haven't they? They've just been firing all over the place and being miserable. This actually changes me to go, oh no, no, they still retain that very thoughtful, very interesting, trying to put out something of substance and, and, and attracting good talent to it as well. There's a very good cast in this film. And uh, and it's revitalized me. Otherwise, it would just be a downward trajectory to, to reaching Jupiter Ascending, which is so bad I can't even drag myself out to the cinema to go watch it, even though I'm going to do a podcast where I can whinge about it at length for fun. If you're going to moan about Jupiter Ascending, you have to have seen Cloud Atlas first. Because if you do think it is, if you're... If you're a view of their career has been Matrix, Matrix sequels, V for Vendetta, largely regarded as not as good as the Matrix. How do you follow that, that difficult second album? Speed Racer, and then, you know, Ninja stuff, and then Jupiter Ascending. You just think it gets dumber and stupider and less good the further it goes. If you then look at Cloud Atlas, it's like, well, after, you know, th- 
you know, three Matrix movies, V for, and V for Vendetta, and then pouring out a childhood affection for Speed Racer, you kind of get, get a bit tired. And then Cloud Atlas is like, no, now we're ready to come back to the world of concepts and ideas and using genre ideas and big special effects and crazy epic stuff to, to talk about things that usually these devices are not employed in the service of. And then you get Jupiter Ascending. You've got a completely, you're like, guys, what? Sorry. I mean, I just went to see Cloud Atlas and you know, yeah. All right. Not the world's greatest movie, but certainly in, you know, nowhere near. I would venture that if you ask people to put lists of a hundred movies to see before you die together, some of them might even include Cloud Atlas on that 100 movies to see before you die. It, it wouldn't make every list, but it would make some of them. And then you get Jupiter Ascending, which is making nobody's 100 movies to avoid before you die. You know, I'm a lifelong Wachowski's apologist, and I cannot apologize for Jupiter Ascending. I just think it's like, what? Like I say, I mean, I've started to have these crazy thoughts, like it's a joke about, oh, so you want us to make stuff like Michael Bay, do you? Well, how do you like them apples? If Michael Bay had made it, I'd feel better about it because at least then it would be explainable. But uh, Michael Bay's doing it for the bucks, and Jupiter Ascending is not. It's, again, it's got all the same intentions, but it's like the Wachowski's got temporarily possessed by the ghost of Ed Wood. Harsh. I mean, just to take what you said about, you know, you come up with this idea, they just kind of did it to go, well, there you go, you happy now kind of film. If you want to make a, a schlock uh, sci-fi action adventure. You can do that, but goodness me, they're brainy enough to put s- some germs of good ideas in there. It's not that I'm against films where lots of things explode. I just want to be invested in the reason why things are exploding and feel like it's been a worthwhile journey to get there. So I feel like they could have satisfied here's your schlock and here's an idea. It's not well, so complex, but you can get your head around. People look down on pulp and genre because they see it as a low form of entertainment. And they look down on the people who produce genre and pulp entertainment because they see them as hacks. If pulp was just something you did for a laugh, then there would be loads of good pulp everywhere because people would be tossing it off left, right and centre. The reason we have such reverence for people like Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, uh, some stuff that Spielberg's done and so on and so forth, and such affection for sort of big genre pieces of entertainment like, ah, The Matrix, uh, or, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy, or, you know, any one of a number of aliens, James Cameron, Terminator, Terminator 2. The reason we have such reverence for these cultural artefacts is because making stuff like that is really difficult. You can't just toss it off in an afternoon and go, hey, there it is, and everybody goes, yeah, wow, that was fun. Uh, no, you, the, it has to be constructed. It has to be so constructed and well put together because otherwise people get bored, like really bored and frustrated and angry and just, it, yeah, you can't just make genre entertainment. It's a really hard thing to do. And mm. if you wanted proof of that, 
go and watch Jupiter Ascending, which manages to simultaneously uh, have great villains, in theory, who have a properly bad motivation that you can totally get behind someone kicking their asses over it, and all the money and all the shinies and all the everything, and just walks these two tailored shop dummies through the whole thing, and it seems to collapse in on itself as opposed to anyone actually doing anything to resolve the dark menace that has been pasted onto the screen. As people say, they want to see the movie that Eddie Redmayne thought he was making, not the movie he actually ended up in, because his over-the-top camp performance is a remarkable thing, and if everybody was of that pitch, it would have been fun. It would have been so much fun. But the fact is that your two main characters, and I'm not going to blame, I've, I've got time for Channing Tatum. I think he's, well, the Jump Street movies prove that he's got some kind of understanding of what's going on because you can't be that self-referential and inward-looking without having some kind of German be funny with it, like demonstrably funny, and not have an idea what's going on. So he's not wooden, he's just wooden in this because there's nothing for him to do. The heroic characters in this are not heroic. They never have a motivation you can understand or appreciate. It really is a masterclass in inappropriate romances, which is kind of a theme in the first Matrix, you were kind of willing to go along with it, I suppose, but it still, it didn't quite gel. And as it went through, it got even more ridiculous. <laughs> um, v for Vendetta, the bit where she kisses his mask is just stupid. Ninja Assassin, where the ninja investigator from Europol falls in love with the ninja assassin because he's a refugee from a Korean boy band, is just stupid. Uh, I mean, yeah, it seems to be a, a, a chime that's hit we can't do romance and hmm. Jupiter Ascending is the most can't doiest of all there's this whole thing where I read an article about uh, there's a bit where she falls off the top of a building and Channing Tatum saves her and they wanted to do it at this particular time with the lighting effect in Chicago on this particular building at this particular time of day which only lasts for six minutes like before it the light's too bright afterwards it's too dark so they had to film for only six minutes a day for months to get all the shots they needed to make this sequence up and they were talking about how she falls off the building but at the same time she realizes she's quite literally falling in love with it and you're like she's known him at this point like 20 minutes it doesn't make any sense and he doesn't say anything to her that would possibly lead her to to fall in love. There, there is no emotional beat between them. There's no chemistry. There's nothing. Because there isn't a chance for there to be. I mean, our frustration with this film is this. If you've just given us the same play box pieces, we could probably have done something better. Generally speaking, I feel, look, it, it comes across as people not having fun watching this. It should be fun to watch this. It apparently it, it isn't. And as for the whole, if she falls, he, as she falls, she falls in love with him. As no, 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 he catches her, and he's a competent uh, male human being. The conventions say she's now well disposed towards him sexually. I would assume. And how these things go down in cinema. It yeah. doesn't really work that way. No. It's just it doesn't really work at all. There isn't really any work. She. 
she is supposed to be the heroine, but she has no real motivation to do anything. Um, and as well as which, they keep telling her things. Oh, you're the queen of the galaxy. It's like, and that means nothing. I mean, it literally means nothing. It's not a fantasy for you to be the queen of the galaxy. If you look at Harry Potter, the fantasy of Harry Potter is you're not some orphan who's forced to live under the stairs. You're a wizard. And we're going to teach you how to do that properly. And that's the fantasy. And they get straight on in there with that. He goes to Hogwarts. He has a magic wand. There is magic. There is uh, sport, whatever that's called. Can't remember. It's one on the broomsticks. Quidditch, that's right. There is all the trapping. Like, you appreciate the fantasy because you're led through the fantasy by the writer J.K. Rowling. She says, this is how it is. This is what it's like to be a wizard. You get to revel in that. Jupiter sending, you're the queen of the universe. Let's run away. You don't get... Here is your vanguard of uh, shining robot soldiers. You don't get, here is your state spaceship that's been kept in hock for you, your triumphant return for millennia. You don't get any of that. You just get, yeah, you get to wear a plaid shirt and we call you the queen of the universe, everyone's to kill you. And then you've got one hybrid wolf-human thing that kind of is well disposed towards saving you, but then only because he's been paid to do so by third parties for reasons which are never really made plain. It, the whole thing is just like, it just sucks. Like it really sucks, which is, I suppose at the end, they kind of try and make that into a point, but it's like, well, no, the question there is what's the point of her being the queen of the galaxy. If actually just there isn't any upside if there isn't an upside to it, what's the point in it? On yes. paper, she owns some stuff that someone yes. else wants. Like Harry Potter, <clears throat> he doesn't really have very much going for him. So when he can go to this wizard thing, he grasps it with both hands. In this one, I suppose you do get a genuine sense of quality to go back to a normal little life on Earth where people weren't trying to kill her. I well, mean, uh, yeah. The Harry Potter equivalent would be where they have to kind of take him away from the Dursleys because Voldemort's out and is immediately gunning for him. Yeah, and, and he hasn't got time to be, to enjoy anything. Essentially, you get all of these genre conventions and each one of them, they're not being subverted, they're being mishandled, which is a different thing altogether. To subvert something, you want to appreciate what it is, then do a clever twist on it that is all about, oh, be careful what you wish for, whereas this is just, oh, yeah, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Well, and I, it's yeah. so flat and dull and terrible. It's just, it's almost like a masterclass in how not to do all this stuff. <laughs> I think we've beaten this sufficiently. I, I feel I must ask, and do you feel that the uh, distributors were now quite justified in trying to bury Jupiter Ascending? Hmm. I think that them moving the film was good for the Wachowskis, the future of the Wachowskis' career. Because I think if they'd have released it up against Guardians of the Galaxy, it would have made more money because people would have been in the mood, but then more people would know just how bad it was. That's that's what I feel. I feel that, yeah, it was the right thing to do from the point of view of the fact that the Wachowskis can now go make another film. And loads of people go, I didn't even go see Jupiter Ascending. And so maybe they'll make another decent movie and then they'll be back on track. 
but it was the wrong thing to do from the point of view of making, which is weird for a movie studio, all the money that they could, because people would totally have turned out to see it last year after Guardians of the Galaxy, and then they would have known how shit it was. So, hmm. yeah. Good for the Wachowskis, bad for the studio, their, their release decision. Uh, I, will, uh, I, will, yes. I, will, I will just say with some sadness, I know Jane Mangold Straczynski's fingerprints were all over this, the great maker of Babylon 5, What's Become of You. Uh, hope for the future, perhaps, for the making a TV series called Sense8. Have you heard of this? I have heard of this, but I don't know anything about it. It's, a, it's not a TV series in the sense that it's, it's, it's going to be on people's televisions, and it is a series, but it's not for a network. It's, I think it's an Amazon Prime but it might be a Netflix. I think it's, it's, net, it's Netflix. I shall, I, shall right. brief, I shall briefly read out the... Uh, Sense8 would tell the story of eight strangers from different cultures and parts of the world who in the aftermath of a tragic death suddenly find themselves mentally and emotionally connected and evolution leap of a technological origin. Uh, while they try to figure out what's happening in terms of what this means for future mankind, a mysterious, powerful man named Jonas will attempt to bring together while another stranger called Mr. Whispers and his organisation will attempt to hunt them down and assassinate them. Each episode will heavily feature on one character and their story and J. Malkodinsky is involved again so yeah I, don't, I mean I think, that the, the, I think uh, that well you, you know the, the cloud atlas part of me goes oh eight interconnected stories this could be interesting but then you've got the Jupiter ascending part of yourself going oh my god this is going to be this is going to suck you can't really take too much out of JMS's involvement and I think I think that all of the complaints people have about J. Michael Straczynski come from the idea that people are expecting something whereas <laughs> if you look at the number of things that he's been involved with some of them work some of them don't i think he takes the broad view that he does what he does and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and if you're there expecting the goods every time that's your lookout it's nothing to well do uh, i mean i have followed i did follow the guy quite closely for a while he is pretty much i'm a writer i write and the only reason he became executive producer of anything was because he wanted to have more control over how, what he wrote going out so i think he's had quite a good working relationships with those kalskis because i think they're all kind of well, we've got this plan set let's go do it which i think chimes with him very well Exactly. So I, so I don't feel like I can absolve him of any blame in any, in, in any of the things he's been associated with, with the Wiskalskis that haven't worked right. But who knows? With TV, maybe we'll have time to unpack things better. I don't know. Mind you, they're bloody long enough Jupiter sending, didn't they? Yeah, where, where it is, it's that frustration again that the, the cheapest part of all of this is writing the script. It's, it's de facto the cheapest thing that you can do. Even an editor needs a massive avid rig to do all of the bits and bobs. And then in post, you know, you have all of these other things like Foley and interleaving things in. You know, it's like a writer needs a pen and a piece of paper and a quiet place to sit down and write things down. And so of all of the parts of the process, that part should be the part that has the most traction. And yet so often it has the least traction. And this is the final, I think, point is that people who made Cloud Atlas, V for Vendetta and all the Matrix movies, I feel should have been able to read over their script for Jupiter Ascent and go, hang on, just noticed Jupiter has no motivation, isn't at all likable. Maybe we should fix that. They're capable of it. Yes. It's not like if Michael Bay had done it, I would be like, well, bless him, he doesn't know any better. Whereas these people demonstrably do know a little bit better, and so 
what gives? Why? Why is this person so cipher-like, so completely? It's like we, we, we did discuss many moons ago the idea that in certain places, a cipher-like female opposite character to a male character is a good idea uh, because it seems to allow women to write themselves into the ghost was where we talked about that, where the fact that Demi Moore's kind of nothingy bolsters Patrick Swayze's hunkosity because women can overwrite Demi Moore with themselves and therefore be more fully immersed in the world of ghost. Yeah. Well, this is the exact opposite of that. Nobody can engage with Jupiter ascending. It's all happening outside of you and you've got no way in. That is the result of having a character you just can't relate to, who does things you don't understand. For I, no I have J. Michael Jasinski's book of script writing. I feel I should highlight certain passages and send it over to him. I really do. A man who told me, you know, to, uh, it's stories about some some person wanting something and somebody else trying to stop them. <laughs> this is the film you made. Uh, anyway, uh, let's look to the future. We don't know what else is on their slate at the moment, but they're going to churn out another film soon. Oh, later. McTeague's got quite a few things on his uh, upcoming, so presumably they're going to be working with him, uh, just taking a bit of a, a rest for 10 minutes and helping their buddy James do stuff that he's going to do, which is fine. I mean, I've got no, I mean, you know, they've got quite a lot of credit in my bank. They're going to have to do at least four more. I would say maybe three Jupiter Ascendings, yeah. mm. three or four altogether uh, Jupiter Ascendings before I'm like, no, nope, I'm done with this. But yeah, I mean, Jupiter Ascending is pretty, it's a Jupiter sized black mark on an otherwise, well, you know, spotty but decent, interesting escutcheon. I'm, I'm, I'm much more hopeful. I have not actually had to endure Jupiter Ascending and indeed I have seen Cloud Atlas today. So I am. I'm invigorated. Yes, ordinarily I would have put them on the, the, the modern day Lucas, George Lucas. That is quite an indictment from me. But after watching Cloud Atlas, I'm invigorated. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. Again, they, they've again, still got it. Yeah. Again, it's sad because at least if George Lucas had made it, it's because he wanted to sell the spaceships and the figures and the, you know, you're like, okay, I can see why the crass commercialism has come into this. But Wachowski's don't want to sell any of that. So what it, it to a w- way, it doesn't make it worse. It makes me more disappointed and sadder that this is really what they thought artistically was what should be happening. Well, it doesn't make no sense. we can only hope they're going to take their lumps with this one and try harder in the future. And I actually have a bit of hope for them. I mean, I think certainly Cloud Atlas, as we said, is a troubled film. But there's just so many interesting ideas. And I, quite frankly, if a film has an interesting idea behind it, I, it, it just gets so many points from me these yes days. this is exactly this is exactly i was expecting to go to jupiter ascending and be baffled by it like by jupiter going in and going wow that was crazy i didn't even really understand what was happening whereas in fact i understood exactly what was happening what was baffling me was why i did it's a little bit like when i went to see uh, hollow man uh, and, and just to say, Hollow Man turned out to be nearly Verhoeven's last feature film. Uh, it was certainly his last English language feature film. So let's hope we're not looking at that. But everything else Verhoeven had done was had some kind of agenda beyond the surface. And Hollow Man was the one it just didn't. It was just cool special effects and Kevin Bacon being a dick. 
And that's all it was. Everyone says that, including Verhoeven. And I was like, really? And it, that, that was one. It was like, I was sad and I was puzzled by that whole idea of why that had been. And this is the same sort of thing here. I, where I, I, like, I can, I can only say again, chin up, chin up. They've still got it. 2012 wasn't that long ago. So, no. you know. You know, if you want to find somewhere special where they can tell us that this episode was a serious letdown after a somewhat promising series of previous episodes, they could go to our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, 80s. Please go there and like our page. It's our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. Uh, but uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those, please point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids dot podomatic.com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your computer for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is anywhere our most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where you can also find other stuffs by me. But recently, we archived the Christmas episode of uh, this very podcast. So, uh, yeah, go along there and check that out if you haven't already. Our regular, uh, although not so regular at the moment, co-conspirator uh, Justin can be found at justinwyatt.deviantart.com, where you can see drawings that he has done, but uh, probably not within the last couple of weeks because he's been pretty busy one thing that should probably be mentioned at this point as you uh, if you have rushed to your podcast aggregator to download this episode as it was released this weekend after the broadcast of this show uh, or the podcast of this show we will be going live to do our summer predictions for this year to make ourselves look like complete fools when it comes around to October uh, so yes we will be doing that on Google uh, and then uh, an audio version of that will be available afterwards but why not join us live to see us all uh, making our announcements about what we think are going to be the most five successful films of the summer of uh, 20 2015 uh, and and uh, there'll be no prizes for guessing that therefore we might might possibly mention some film that might possibly have the hulk and iron man in it possibly i I think that might actually get talked about next week uh so that's kind of wraps us up doesn't it ian yeah afraid so yeah i think so so now we're going to go off and put cloud atlas and v for vendetta on and try and forget try and forget uh jupiter ascending try and get jupiter to in fact descend <laughs> into a pit of forgetfulness much the same way that speed racer did uh and until then i guess we say goodbye goodbye, goodbye.